I'm Peter Devlin, and you're listening to another episode of In Conversation for the Cinema Audio Society. That musical theme was from one of the most watched television shows of the 1950s, I Love Lucy. And it also had the distinction of being one of the first shows to shoot in a three-camera setup for a sitcom, a format which still continues to this day. It also has a connection to our next guest, Charlie Wilborn, who was, in 2003, the recipient of a Career Achievement Award from the CAS. Charlie was just beginning his career in Hollywood in that golden age of television and worked in sound on some of the most popular television shows of the day. The Untouchables, Have Gun Will Travel, Hawaii Five-O, and Dr. Kildare. There was no genre that Charlie wasn't involved in. As he moved from television to feature production, it was the next three decades that reflected his significant work on some of the most celebrated films of that time period. Charlie came into the studio to discuss his work, and we were also joined by his daughter, Anna, who followed her dad into the world of sound. I began with asking the most obvious of questions. How did it all begin? I went to the uh, I Love Lucy show to watch uh, I Love Lucy. They have warm-ups and whatever, and a good size audience, and it's live, you know, and there's three cameras, two booms, hidden microphones. And the mixer sits up on a booth, up, up above everything behind the audience. And they come out and they warm up the audience. And then at about in the middle of it, and they say, we want to introduce you to our sound man who's sitting up in that booth, the nominated Academy Award so-and-so. And he would open the door and stick his head out. They put the spotlight on him. He'd go like this. And I sat there and I said, I want that job. I really did. I want that job. I want to be a mixer. I have to be a mixer. So that kind of really got me stirred up. Hello, friends. I'm your Vitamita Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? <laughs> Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. Now you pick up the bottle. Oh. A little higher. That's right. The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. Vitamita Benjamin. Vitamita Benjamin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. Yes, with Vitamita Benjamin, you can spoon your way to health. Cam McCulloch was the production mixer. And how did you get your first job on I Love well, Lucy? This is another story. I was going to visit my girlfriend at the time. Their family lived right across the street from Liberace. So it was a nice neighborhood. And their next-door neighbor was a guy named Johnny Fredrickson. He was trying to talk me into coming to work for him. And he said, you know, you're perfect. You'd make a great salesman and whatever, and on and on. And I said, I, I don't want to do that. And I'm too young. I'm 20 years old, and I don't... Well, you're crazy. And so he said, well, what in the hell do you want to do with your life? And he's kind of like a father figure. John was a terrific guy. And I said, uh, I'm trying to get into the sound union. I want to be a sound man. And he looked at me and he said, why didn't you tell me sooner? 
And he said, well, you know what? My wife happens to have a brother that's a sound mixer. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. Picks up his outside telephone, calls him, and he's over. In 10 minutes, he's out by the pool having a beer with us. His name was uh, Rush, wonderful guy. Well, we talked, and then he asked me my background and whatever I'd done and my stuff at Rocketdyne and knowing about recorders and, you know, all the rest of it. And So he said, uh, okay, I'll see what I can do. He said, uh, I'll, talk to, uh, I'll talk to Tom Carmen. Tom Carmen then was the head of the union. He was the guy. So I thought, yeah, sure. And then he threw in that. He said, you know, Tom Carmen is one of my best friends. Uh, then it sounded a little better, but still because I'd heard so much baloney of who can help and who couldn't, and nothing ever happened. So that was on a Saturday. Monday afternoon, I got a call from the union on for uh, the Groucho Marx show. You Bet Your Life, I think, was the name of it. And that was my start. So you're in the union. Was it as a utility? Was it, I mean, how was the crew structured? Well, you, you Bet Your Life... All I did was plug in cameras and they'd, you know, warm up and uh, I'd help the guys. There was a boom man on it, you know, and I'd plug that stuff in and you were a cable person. And you did everything they needed for the sound mixer. And if they needed a second mic, you'd handle it with the help of the boom man because you didn't know really what the hell you were doing. And so that started it. I went on that and then they signed me to a pilot, the, uh, the union did, because they were out of people. And I worked with an Irishman, an old Irishman. Well, it was over to me then. He was in his 50s. And a real gentleman and a fun guy. He took me under his wing. So I worked with him on a, on a pilot. And then they offered him the Bill Stack thing, the untouchables. The mixer wanted him, and so did the production, because he had a great reputation. Boom in, as, as you know, or damn important to a mixer. Over right arm. So uh, he wouldn't take the show unless they allowed him to take me with him. And they gave in. They said, okay. So that's how I got on the first day of The Untouchables, the new season. And with The Untouchables, was that uh, recorded on MAG? Did they have synchronous yeah, camera? Yeah, the, and... the, the recorder on that particular show went over a telephone line, and you had to plug the cables into the wall. And they recorded it back at the studio, believe that or not. Where did you want to go in terms of the work that you were wanting to do? Did you see yourself, okay, I'm doing utility, booming. I really want to be a mixer. That's oh, I wanted to be a mixer right from the start. I didn't see any reason why I couldn't be a mixer. I knew it would take some work, but I knew I had to establish myself and be liked and be damn good at what I did. So when you were at MGM, you got the opportunity to work with mixer Phil Mitchell and the director, John Ford, Seven Women. What were your memories of John Ford? Because at this time, he's had this amazing career. Uh, he has done some of the biggest films ever. What was your interaction with John Ford? Oh, God, there wasn't much. I'll tell you that. I was booming. I was sitting on the, the boom watching them light, which, you know, normally took quite a while, as you know. And uh, I was reading a trade magazine. So he came over and he looked at me and he says, what are you doing there? And I said, I'm, uh, I'm reading, you know, looking at the trades. He said, really, huh? 
He said, just looking? And I said, no, no, I'm reading. I'm reading. Oh, you can read too, huh? I said, yes, sir. He says, well, you take that and get off the set, he says, and leave it outside. And if I see you doing it again, you're going home. And that's all I ever—that was my interaction with John Ford. So you never brought the newspaper in again? I I never—no, I sure as hell didn't. So the structure of the studios today, it's a very different working environment for production mixers. They've kind of got to go out, find their own work. Sometimes you can get established in a, a television series. So you've got MGM, you've got Universal, you've got Warner Brothers. Did they all have their own departments, their own favorites of yes, production mixers? Did. Absolutely. It was wonderful. And the thing is, you didn't always work on a set in sound. You would work in uh, the dubbing rooms. You'd work in the looping rooms. Here's an example, for instance. One day I was uh, assigned to the uh, the looping room where they were doing loops. And uh, it was Julie Andrews for, uh, I forget the name of the movie right now. Oh, the Americanization of Emily. And I'd sit down on the floor. The mixer sat up in a box. I would uh, move the camera I mean, the microphone around, depending upon the loop and whatever, you know, if it was close or what, back and forth. And I'd look up occasionally and he'd, you know, the mixture go little and whatever. So after about a half hour, Julie Andrews said, Charles, I want you to know that you are the smallest audience I've ever played to. <laughs> and I've worked with a guy named Buddy Elper. He was a character and we did a lot of stuff together. And, uh, Take the Money and Run, for instance, which was uh, Woody Allen's first picture. <laughs> and Bud always had to stick his nose in everything. It was just insanity. And it was Woody's first picture. So he's listening to Bud, but he kind of doesn't want to. And Bud is always saying, well, you know, no, the look should be camera left over here. You know, you've got him looking on the wrong side, and you should bring him around. And, and then the camera's thinking, I should be telling him, the, the goddamn sound mixer's doing it. So, uh, Buddy got away with this for about a week. There's a knock on my door. I opened it, and it's the producer. And he said, uh, Charlie, uh, Woody really likes you. He said, we're firing Bud. Woody wants you to be the mixer. I said, what? He said, Buddy is driving Woody crazy. So I said, uh, if Bud goes, I go. I said, we're a team. He hired me. I said, I can't do that. He said, Jesus Christ. So he, he didn't know what in the hell to do. I said, tell you what, let me talk to Buddy. I think I can make him step back. I said, we can settle things that way. I said, at least give me two days to do it. He said, okay, but if things don't change, he's gone. And I said, so am I. And he didn't know what to say about that. Sticking together, the whole oh, department. Oh, you have to. You know, he hired me. And he was damn good at what he did. He was a good mixer. So I talked to Buddy. I never told him that they were going to can his ass and they wanted me. And he backed off. And we finished the show. I'll never forget it. I got a little cigarette lighter, and they gave him a big TV set. <laughs> and, and, and listen to this one. Buddy went on to do pictures with Woody after that. Now, isn't that crazy? 
you know, I was mixing then, so it made no difference to me. So, so was that the point where you decide, okay, I'm going to mix? Well, now that it's been dangled in again, front of me. Again, Buddy is responsible for this. He got offered the Bill Cosby show. Now, mind you, I'm still in my 20s, late 20s, okay? All the mixers were old guys. 99% of them were pretty damn old. It was kind of a turnover then at the time. It's just how it was, I guess. Yeah, and a lot of guys from were, were from uh, RCA and that, the mixers, you know, a lot of them were engineers. So anyway, uh, Buddy got offered the Bill Cosby show, Bill's first show ever. Buddy recommended me. He said he's really good at what he does and he should be a mixer and, you know. So he got me an interview and I went in and I talked to them and I'll be damned if they didn't hire me. And that was the beginning of me mixing. And what uh, equipment were you using back then? What was, was that through the studio? Did they provide equipment? It was all studio stuff. So, but did mixers at that time want to have their own equipment or were they quite happy being a... They couldn't. The studios had all the equipment and uh, no, there was none of that. Well, I I started soon after, but... uh, And what was the equipment package for the Cosby show? Well, you had a mixing panel and a Niagara and uh, microphones and, you know, they wheeled in a boom and three or four mics and... uh, Radios? No, no back radios. Then? No, no radios. Larry Joe started the radios over at MGM and uh, had them engineered and all that. And they weren't very reliable and they scared the hell out of me and I didn't want to use them. So I always, I didn't use radios for a long time. I did a better job because of it, I think. The last day of the, uh, the Bill Cosby show, I'm, I'm going to the, uh, the, con- the commissary, and Mike Motor, a friend of mine, we play baseball against each other and whatever. So Mike said, what happened? I said, well, I'm not, I haven't got much going. I said, I just finished the Bill Cosby show. He said, oh, he said, uh, I'm going to be the first on uh, Jeremiah Johnson. I said, oh, he said, just come on in and talk to Sid. I said, Sidney Pollock? And he said, yeah. He's not going to talk to me. I said, I'm a TV guy, you know? And he says, well, bullshit. I'll set up a a, a meeting with him. And he, What do you have to lose? Come on in, talk to Sid. I said, well, sure. Yeah, I'll do it. But I figured, it, yeah, fat chance. So uh, two days later, I'm in and I'm sitting there talking to Sid. We talked for over an hour about everything. And he was terrific. And he hired me. I couldn't believe it. And that was my first big mixing job. And with with Jeremiah Johnson, how did you get your equipment package together? Or is this another time where you're having to use the studio's equipment? I, and I had a lot of my own stuff and my own radio mics. So at this point, you'd started to build your equipment. Were you yes, recording on yeah. a, a Niagara 4L? Did you have? Yeah, I had the Niagara's and, you know, the mixing panels and the, the radio mics. I had all the stuff. Uh, who was your crew on the show? Pat Mitchell, Larry Huberry. I think it might have been, was it a three-man crew? might have been. Larry Huberry was the recorder, though, because we were recording on the set. I didn't record then. It was on a machine that I gave him the stuff. and uh, So you were feeding him? He was a yeah, yeah, it, sound recorder? Yeah, he turned it on a recorder is all he was doing. And then uh, Pat Mitchell was the boom man. It was, it was a nice experience, and by then 
Redford and I knew each other really well, and he was happy to see me, and uh, so we became friends. Well, it's, it's always nice to have a familiarity with the people that you work with. You're talking always about, try to. Yeah, with Mike Motor being the first assistant director. Yeah, and, sure. And, and you, then you Mike know. was directing second unit, too. On, the, on Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, I'd like to move on to another kind of director that had, uh, certainly I'm very familiar with his movie, The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah. Now, Sam Peckinpah is a legendary character. Was it on the strength of Jeremiah Johnson that you got to do his film, which was um, Junior Bonner with Steve McQueen? You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. After Jeremiah Johnson, I did a couple things. And for some reason, my name got around, and I was in demand suddenly, big time. And I'd have two or three offers at, at the same time, and I'd have to decide which one. And I'm not sure why this happened, but it did. I was in that position for about 15 years. It was amazing. And I'd, I'd have a mixer call me and said, you know, I went in for an interview with three different companies, and they all said, you're doing their film. How can you do three at once? I said, well, I'm going to try. So anyway, that, uh, yeah, I, I kept very busy, as busy as I wanted to be. Well, there was, a, there was a scene in Junior Bonner, which was the kind of 4th of July parade. That was quite a— That was the toughest shot I've ever done in the industry. You know, it was tough. And everybody told me not to take the Peckinpah movie. I had two other offers, and I'd seen The Wild Bunch, and I thought it was one of the best Westerns ever made. And— I know Sam had a terrible reputation as just being a son of a gun to work for. And he fired people left and right, and I'd heard that he had fired the sound department, the whole department, after a week of listening to their dailies. So I interviewed, and I got the job. And then we, uh, the first big shot, trouble is, right out of the van, was that thing that went all the way through the city, the town. And there were like seven or eight camera positions and... There were five or six different places where dialogue took place on horseback for people coming up to the floats, and uh, it was a killer. It really was. And during the, uh, the, the, the whole day was the setup of going through how everything was going to be done. At the end of it, and I didn't even know Peck and Paul knew who the hell I was. I mean, I'm sure he did, but. He called up Wilborn. I'm sitting in the back, and I say, yeah, Mr. Peckinpah. He said, how do you propose on doing this? And I said, a lot of prayer would certainly help. <laughs> and he smiled slyly, and the room thought that was really funny, and everybody laughed. And uh, Mike Cohut, have you heard the name Mike I Cohut? Have, yes. Yeah. So then he was your boom operator. How did you— break down that 10-minute sequence? I brought in another Nagra and more micro, uh, more radio mics. And uh, Michael dressed up as an Indian on the float and, and then had the boom like it was, uh, you know, something the Indians use. And uh, I recorded all the different effects. And by the way, it was a noisy scene. And then I had another little mixer and then I even had switches going into a pot where you could switch and go to a different microphone. And everything was numbered, and that took, Jesus, hours because it had to be right. And then I had the script, of course, and I'm reading everything, and I'm making switches here 
And then Michael's telling me, because I'm not seeing anything, because we didn't have the uh, the assist in those days, you know, where you were looking at a monitor. And he's telling me, okay, Steve's coming up on a horse, you know, and they're 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 talking, and uh, it was it was crazy, and the scene ran for the whole ten minutes, and uh, there were, you know, it was solid dialogue from different people everywhere. It ended up with uh, Steve McQueen and his dad talking on a bench, and we cut there finally. And uh, Sam came over and looked at me. He said, how'd it go for you? And I said, damn good, really. Yeah, it's a couple glitches, but uh, they're all unclear. And uh, so it, it worked out wonderful. And then Sam actually came over after dailies. And that's how I think more or less he started to have respect for me. Steve McQueen uh, then went on to do The Getaway, which you were the sound, sound mixer on as well. Now you've gotten to know McQueen. When you have a relationship with an actor, sometimes it's easier to ask for that little bit more voice oh, sure. level. But yeah. today, sound mixers, boom operators, utility are still going up to actors to say, can I get a little bit more voice level? Oh, yeah, sure. And it's always a thorn in the side for directors, which I don't understand today. And I'm sure, what about your experiences when you Same needed... Same thing. We were shooting a scene in a, in a bar, cowboy bar, and there was a ton of ambience. And Steve's sitting at a table having lunch and talking to his father. I can barely, you know, Steve mumbles a lot. I don't know if you know that, but he does. He's, he underplays everything. And, you know, you're like this trying to hear what Nelly's saying. So I, I said, Sam, I, I need more voice. He said, okay, ask him. So I said, uh, Steve, and he looked over and he says, yeah. I said, could you mumble a little louder? <laughs> <laughs> There's one particular film that um, Peckinpah did, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, one of the last films you worked with, Sam Peckinpah. You want it straight? That's what you're here for? The electorate. Once you've gone, out of the country... But are they telling me? Are they asking me? I'm asking you. But in five days, I'm making you. It's when I take over Sheriff Lincoln County. Oh, Pat. Sheriff Pat Garrett. Sold out to Santa Fe Ray. How does it feel? It, uh, feels like times have changed. Times, maybe. Not me. You were saying uh, James Coburn. James Coburn's voice is like, he, he's so identifiable, a great quality. Absolutely. Never had to sure, I'm sure you never had to ask him to speak up, but he's joined by Chris Christopherson, which was, I think, his first kind of major yeah. role, and also a newbie called uh, Bob Dylan. So what was the dynamic on the set with these guys and yourself? Because you had to record some music as well, I believe. Yes, a lot of music. 
Dylan was very quiet, and he wasn't much of an actor, you know. And Christofferson was very, very friendly and terrific. Sam had bought a thing he paid a couple grand for, a stereo recorder and playback and whatever. And so the main reason he had these guys was he wanted them to write music for the picture. So he threw a party, and uh, Dylan had his musicians come in, and so did Christofferson. So they're setting up because they're going to play the stuff. Sam's going to listen to it and see what maybe works for the movie. Sam says, I want you to record this stuff on, on my new setup. Well, I'm going to say no or whatever. So, you know, I get some cables out and put some mics here and there in front of the band and whatever. And uh, one for Dylan, of course. And when he's watching me do all this, he comes over. He says, what in the hell are you doing? And I said, Sam wants me to record this stuff on his new setup. He said, well, it's a waste of time. He said, Sam wants me to do it. And he went, yeah. So anyway, they recorded, I recorded a couple songs from them and then a couple songs from Christofferson. When it was all finished and people are clapping, you know, for the stuff, of course, because it was a party too with the cast crew. So Sam says, I want you to play it back. And I said, I didn't really want to. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. And I played it back. Well, guess what? Sounded great. Sounded great. And when I was finished playing Dylan's song, he comes rushing over to me and he said, how in the hell did you do that? I love that mid-range and all this. So I said, you know, I said, tweeted a little bit and played around with it, a little microphone, you know, here and there, and we did it. He said, it was fantastic. So, okay, I'm thinking, well, I made a friend at least with him. And then Chris came over and said, it's good stuff. And it made Sam very happy. So they're going to go to CBS Studios in Mexico City to uh, record the music, right, for the movie. So Sam decides he doesn't want to go. And us being, you know, close. He says, I'm sending you there as an emissary. So I said, okay. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to do this. So Coburn says, come on, I'll go with you, because I'd worked with Coburn before on a Blake Edwards picture, and we became buddies. I said, okay, so we have our own car driver, and we go to Mexico City. So we get to the studio and go in and sit down, and the studio's up on a stage. And all these sound equipments up on a stage, and you sit down and you're looking up at what's going on. They've already started recording. You know, they're in the middle of the song, and it finishes it, and they play it back. So I'm sitting there, you know, everything sounds okay to me. There was a Mexican fellows, mixer, and three or four sound stage guys that are doing stuff. Big mixing panel, it must be 20 feet long. Dylan has him play his song back. And he just goes, I don't like it. I thought, well, it sounds okay to me. <laughs> of course, maybe anything, but I'm not sure. So he says, Charlie, uh, you got to mix the, you got to mix this stuff. This this guy is not doing it. I want that high middle range, this and that, that you did at Sam's place. And I said, uh, well, I, he says, come on, let's go, hurry up. And Coburn, you know, says, go on, get up there. <laughs> so. <laughs> We get up there, and this Mexican mixer gets up and walks away. 
so anyway, I never did get it for the for the first run through. The first it was knocking on Evan's door, by the way. So I figure I got pretty much everything going on. Maybe not sure of that. I'm going this way. Yeah, that sounds. So we go ahead and do it. Well, Dylan, you know, has these two microphones here, and he's got his mic, and then he's got his harmonica. So we get all the way through it. I'm happy with what I've done, but we got we got mic hits from his harmonica, right? And Dylan says, "Yeah, that's pretty good." And I say, "Bob, you got to do it again. You got you got mic hits." So I go, I j- jump over to him, and I get the mics and I separate them some more and put them a little because they're still going to be fine, right? They're down his throat practically. And I said, "You know, we can't have mic hits on the goddamn thing." And he says, eh, that'll bother me. And I said, please. So anyway, I reset it. We do it again. I don't know how he manages it. More mic hits. And anyway, Knocking on Heaven's Door made it into the album, with my name on it, by the way, which was nice, with the mic hits. Uh, I'm going to play a track from a film that was from 1973, and this is one of my favorite films with wonderful performance by Al Pacino. I remember when I was a kid, Frank, he had to be very quiet when we played me here. I was very happy that this house never went to strangers. First Clemenza took it over, now you. My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close but your enemies closer. Now, if Hyman Roth sees that I interceded in this thing in the Rosado brothers' favor, he's going to think his relationship with me is still good. Agabit. Agabit. That's what I want him to think. I want him completely relaxed and confident in our friendship. Then I'll be able to find out who the traitor in my family was. So that was the that was the Godfather Part Two. That was a film that in 1973 got great critical acclaim. How did you get the call to work for Francis Ford Coppola? The production manager was a guy named Mike Glick, and uh, I'd done some Rockies with Mike and a few other pictures too. And he called me in and recommended me highly. Probably weren't even considering me. Maybe they were. I don't know. And I had a real short meeting with Francis. He hired me. Now, when you look back at that film, it is an amazing follow-up to The Godfather. Are you pleased with it? Can, when you look back at it now, there are films that, from the 60s, 70s, they don't age as well, but The Godfather Part Two is still an Doesn't outstanding... Doesn't together, Jesus? What, what strikes me is, is there's a simplicity to sound recording back then. It's about the story... And you're doing so much with minimal gear. I could guarantee you I could do with what I used then. Not now because of four cameras and a wide angle and you have to put radio mics on. But without shooting at the old way, the new movies, with all the new equipment, I'll guarantee you I could record on that old stuff I had. It would sound just as good. You might not think that's true, but I'd swear to it. This ain't a bunch of letters like any other union. It says fist. And that's what we are. Every guy in here, a fist. One fist. One fist. One fist. What are you? What are you? 
Do you remember that day that oh, you recorded sure. that? Absolutely. You know, I didn't know Sly, you know, before that, and I got to meet him, and we talked and laughed a lot about his stuff. He He's a good guy, really a nice person, and smart, too. And I think from the early, you know, movies, I think people thought maybe he was, he was that guy, that Rocky, but he was far from it. But uh, Norman Jewison was wonderful, by the way, and I did a lot of pictures with Norman. Sly one day had a, a 12 o'clock call, and we got wrapped up in a scene that uh, went on and on. And Sly, in the meantime, is out there at noon, one, two, three, four. Finally, at 6 o'clock, he's called on the set for a scene, and he's pissed, really pissed. So he comes in, and he's mumbling and looking down, and you can tell he wants to go after somebody. So uh, we get a rehearsal, and he's not, not really into the rehearsal. You know, he's not mumbling his dialogue and whatever. And so Norman looks at him, and he said, Sly, you seem upset. Is there something wrong? Sly says, you're damn right. You called me in here at 12 o'clock, and I've been sitting in my damn trailer for six hours, and now you call me, and it's 6.30? And Norman said, yeah, it is kind of light. That's a wrap, everybody. <laughs> and Cl he didn't know what in the hell to say. He looked at, well, well wait, well, I, I, you know, I'm... Uh, and everybody just started rapping, and Norman walked off the set. You never heard another word from Sly to Norman about anything, you know. It was... That was Norman Jewison. He was wonderful. Now, I, every sign make sure that I've talked to, uh, whether it be for the podcasts or just in, in conversation, there's always a story about a take that has, that has either gone missing or a piece of equipment that has broken down. It was a scene where he had to come to tears at the gravesite. And we were on, like, take 12, I think. He finally gets to tears. And Norman was going, come on, I'm not doing this till you do. We're going to, this is the real stuff. And Sly finally came around and he poured the tears and we did the scene. So it was finished and uh, everybody's happy. And Norman says, let's uh, play it back, Charlie. Let's hear it. I said, okay. You know, and I always put a beep at the end and you go through the Niagara quick and you hear the beep, bingo, you stop. You, you got your playback and you listen to the scene. I never heard a beep. Then I play it forward. There's nothing there. Play it back. I thought, Jesus Christ, didn't I turn this thing on? What in the hell did I do? And Norman says, where is it? I said, I don't have it. I, I didn't know what else it could be. I mean, I, I thought, did I, you know, I'd done a, million days on a set. Did I not turn it on? So Sly looks at me like, oh, you're kidding. And Norman looks at me because we were always kidding back and forth. He just looks at me. He says, all right, we'll do it again after lunch. And he turns around and they all walk away and they're walking away. And I come back again. I said, this is impossible. I come back, beep, zing, the scene's there. I don't know what happened. If something got over the head, I mean, it was like a miracle. So I screamed to Norman. 
Norman, Norman, is here. I got it. No problem. So what would you say was your attribute? What was it that stood out that Norman Jason said, I want Charlie on the picture or, or Stallone who kept asking you to work in his movies? What, you know? I, I like to think I had a decent personality and that I liked people. If I, if I liked someone, I, I, I wanted them to be a friend. And I made friends with electricians and almost all cameramen. I had cameramen ask for me on their next pictures. You know, it's to do a great job, you have to very often have everybody on your side. Whether they have to change a lamp for you or put a cutter in a place or change something around, move the generator another fucking hundred yards away from down the set, right? And then they have all that four off they have to drag in there. And I could always get people to do all that because I was friendly with everybody and I treated everybody with respect and as a friend. There's been huge changes from when you first came in in the late 1950s through to the 80s. Was there anything that was truly significant in terms of making your life easier in sound recording? No, I don't think so. I think you have a decent recorder and you have good microphones. And you have good boom people and second people, too, who very often you put on a fishbowl somewhere. You know, I, I was one of the first guys to get a DAT, which was a few bucks in those days. The first ones, I think, were like 13 grand. So I, I tried to keep up. I tried to keep up. And then uh, John Coffey wanted me to use his uh, diva. I told the, the uh, director, who was a friend again, that I was going to test this out, and I was a little nervous about it, but I was going to... John had brought out the house, and we went, spent a half a day going through the damn thing. So when editorial found out about it, they wanted no part of it. So I couldn't use it. So I just went back to the, the normal stuff. Well, at this point in the conversation, I'm delighted to include, uh, finally, who's been sitting very quietly to one side here, Charlie's daughter, Anna Wilborn. So, Anna... Thanks for coming along, for, for getting your dad out here to be a part of this. And I have to say, it's now in terms of time period that we're looking at in, in Charlie's films, that this is kind of the time that you make an appearance. Yep. I was born in the mid-70s. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. And um, I started visiting my dad on set from probably the first week I was alive, I'd say. No doubt. I'm sure. Yes, yes, you were visiting. You made friends with Stallone, for instance. <laughs> do, do you remember when you knocked on his door and said, do you remember me? Mm-hmm. And what did he say? He said, remember you. I grew up with you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my dad had done so many films with Stallone that when he finally did Over the Top, Stallone asked my dad to have a small part in it. And so my dad plays the cashier at the casino. And um, it was fun at the time. It was hilarious oh, to see. Oh, we made cross eyes at each other's close-ups and, you know. Of course. And um, so I went to Southeast Asia with my best friend when I was 15 years old with his parents, his family. And um, we'd been traveling all over. And we finally get to Singapore. We get to the place we're staying. I plop my bags down. I turn on the television, and it's that scene from Over the Top. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get away from him, even in Singapore. <laughs> it was a trailer, yeah. So 
your dad didn't do anything to dissuade you because I'd like to tell our listeners that you have uh, a wonderful career yourself. You've, you're just uh, mixing at the moment, but you came in through music editing and you went into sound editorial and then you became a utility boom person in some of terrific TV shows here in Los Angeles with uh, Scrubs. Uh, you did the TV series Nashville. You did the Orville. You know, so your dad didn't dissuade you. What, what was? How did that happen? How did well, you say yes? I want this business. And <laughs> and Charlie, did did you ever have concerns about Anna getting into the industry? Well, you know, I'll tell you why. I think Anna could write as good or better than myself, and I sold stuff and uh, had stuff green lighted and whatever, and I wanted her to write. She could write stories when she was six years old. That had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And she had a talent there. And uh, and I asked her to read some of my stuff, and she made comments that I changed and whatever. And that's where I think I really wanted her to focus on. And she just didn't want to. She wasn't Should have listened. Should have listened. <laughs> I know. So, I... so at which point did you decide... You wanted to go because you went into post-production. I did. Your dad would that have been able to how, help you into production. That was yeah, me that again. was him. I thought that she'd be treated better and quicker in post uh, and, and uh, going to editorial. Yeah. It and was, so it was that's what happened. She got into editorial. and uh, Yeah, which is funny. When you were talking about how you started at MGM, so did I. Yeah. Well, that was where I started, too. That's Immediately right. after college. I went to Barden, upstate New York first, a very, very small school for a couple of years, studied music. And then I transferred to USC, where uh, I finished out and graduated. And, and there I studied humanities and theater, actually. But that that program was excellent. I got to take everything I wanted, which was exactly what I wanted to do in college, was study everything, because I knew I was going to get into film. There was just no two ways around it. It was a life I knew. It was the only thing I knew because I grew up on set watching my dad. So uh, it, I, I couldn't see any other path. So I had fun in college, learned what I wanted to learn, and then immediately got into post-production at my dad's suggestion. And it was a good idea. Um, when I was younger, actually, you always had me shadow the editors on the films. So I shadowed uh, Billy Anderson on... Uh, Fearless, with yeah. Peter Weir, and um, and on Dead Poets Society when I was a teenager, yeah. and and it really did look like a really fun thing to do because I like I loved puzzles and to me editorial is just a nice big puzzle that you get to put together and um, and fixing issues and so it did work out great for a long time and I loved it I loved music editing because I I love music so much it's really a passion of mine for sure. He's got three guitars. Three. I have like seven. And no, now we have, have a drum seven. kit in the house for the kids and keyboards and, and karaoke. Um, we just have so much fun with music. So I, I really enjoyed it. And at the end of the day, though, I missed that family. I missed the production family. I missed being on set. I missed that excitement. I missed um, just that that wonderful camaraderie that we have on a production, you don't have that in post. You know, you have a tiny little crew and you're mostly stuck behind a computer. So when it first started, everything was still on mag. We still had dummies in the in the uh, dubbing rooms. So 
Slowly, I was watching post-production get even more crushed and crushed and crushed into a tiny little box. And it was already kind of like the, you know, redheaded stepchild of the film industry as it was. But And then sound was even further, you know, kind of the very last thought kind of in a way, which is sad. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was getting harder to get you know, long chunks of work. And, uh, you know, nobody wanted to pay overtime and they'd keep you there till midnight and just really weird stuff. So... Um, that was it. I wanted to get into production. and Well, I asked you if you wanted to get in production, and you said yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah I was, I was then, done. Uh, uh, Bill Kaplan talks about th- there was a price to pay for his dad being in the industry because, you know, being away on location, you had mm. the ability to go visit your dad. Yes. But you must have missed him, too, because he wouldn't have been of course. always around. Right. So, I was gone sometimes months, eight, nine months, months a year. Yeah. So, yeah, my mom and I would go out and visit They always off, visit every in the show. middle of the picture for yeah, a, good, a week or so. Yeah, good chunks of time. I have such amazing memories of being on movie sets, from Brubaker to Ordinary People, um, Days of Thunder, Dead Poet Society... We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? I have an admission to make. I only saw this film for the first time in the last month. I can't believe it. It's a movie that I kept saying, I've got to watch this. And it is a film that is so beautiful. And a director that you've worked with twice, you did uh, this film, you did uh, Fearless with him. But Peter Weir is a a true collaborator. Tell me what it was like to work with him. And this is one of these instances where you actually weren't just giving input as a sound mixer. I know people didn't believe some, they say you would do that. And I said, yeah, I do it. I was given the script to read before I talked to Peter, you know, before I was hired even. So I read the script and I, I it had some flaws <laughs> as far as I was concerned. And so our in our meeting uh we we talked about some things and he says, So what do you what do you think of the uh, the story? What do you think of the script? And I said, Well I see one thing that really bothers me a lot and he looked at me like, Oh really? And I said, Yeah. He said, Well let's hear it. It was like let's hear it and it better be good. And I thought, maybe I'm inviting myself right off the film by saying this, right? I said in the script towards the end, 
he comes down with some disease and he gets very sick. And I said, that takes away all the uh, point of the script. The, the only reason at the end of the picture is because he's hurt so much by how much he loves these kids and is being separated by the kids is the whole point of the story and the ending. I said, but to come up with this other silly thing about him being sick, I said, takes away from the whole picture. It leaves me just cold. And that was it. He looked at me, he looked at me. He smiled and he said, would you believe if I tell you we are working right now to take that out of the script? And from then on, I could do no wrong with Peter. Well, there's a great honesty to that. And, you know, the, we sit behind our consoles and we record performance day in, day out. And I think our contribution should always be more than just it was good on a technical level. And unfortunately, I can only count, you know, a handful of people where I've had that relationship to go up to them or they've spoken to me about the performance, about the scene, the script, because maybe it was different back in the 60s and 70s, but our role, I, I hate to say it, it can continue to be diminished unless we have a voice and we need to have a voice and we've got to have these open conversations. But with Dead Poet Society, what were your memories? Because you went to that location and I'm presuming they're, they're screening dailies. Did you get an opportunity to it was sit in there? one of my favorite childhood memories because, I mean, I was 13 years old and on a set with a bunch of really cute boys. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, I remember watching dailies with Ethan Hawke because he'd go every night, just about remember. And yeah. um, I remember... Uh, one day, Robin, we were out in that field, that really, really big field, and it was a scene where the the boys all picked up Robin, I think, and carried him off into the sunset. Do you remember? Yeah. The final scene in the movie, right, isn't it? Towards the end? Yeah. Well, the fun part mm -hmm. is, um, after they did a few takes with Robin, they picked up Peter and hauled him off into the sunset. <laughs> It was so cute. Remember that? Mm-hmm. I'm sure Yeah, did. exactly. And on that day, Robin was, I mean, he was in rare form every moment of his life, pretty much. But he was riffing just the most hysterical things you've ever heard in your entire life. Now, would he, he go to dailies? Well, he would. No. He'd be doing a scene and a jet plane was way in the future, you know, way in the hell out there. You could barely see it. He'd do 10 minutes on the airplane, right in the middle of a scene. Yeah. He'd do a you know, those airplanes are full of this and then that. And you know, the people inside maybe are going in a whole new story and jokes. Right. You know, and then they'd end it and we go back to the scene. Yeah, he was, he was spontaneous and, and a very nice man. Yep. A very nice man. He So sweet. Now, did Peter Weir have to restrain him? Because Robin Williams was also this bigger-than-life personality. As you say, he's always on, and his performance is nuanced and restrained. And was that the work of Peter Weir saying, that's great, bring it down a bit? Or are Robin Williams really found that performance? Peter was very quiet about his directing and the way he led his actors around. It was quiet, a few quiet words, a nod of the head. He wasn't, he handled them so quietly, you would you would think they're just, you know, he's rolling the camera and it's a print, but it wasn't that way. You know, they re rehearsed, of course, before, and we shot the scenes, but uh, he uh, he was a real quiet way of directing. 
He was very elegant. And, and also, we had a relationship that I gave him, and this is true, and you could ask him. I, I would ask him why he did a certain thing, a scene a certain way after we printed it, right? And he'd explain it to me. And then I'd see something and I'd, I'd whisper something to him that I felt wasn't quite right. He'd thank me and use it very often. And if I didn't talk to him for a week or so, he'd say, come on, come on, let's have some dialogue. Why are you being so quiet? So that was it. And then when I did Fearless with him, there were a few scenes in that movie that the writing was so bad. I'm sorry, but they were. I, re I rewrote them, rewrote the scene, took it over, and I'd say, Peter, read this. Okay, just take a look at it. Okay. My God, I missed that. <laughs> He'd say, folks, you're going to get new sides in about a half hour. Charlie Wilborn spotted something. He rewrote it and fixed it. Thank you, Charles. That was Peter. So I had a, you know, a great relationship with him, but it soured a bit when he wanted me to fire my boom man. We're on this boat, and he was making a problem. I said, just go around this way and do it. I said, it's simple, right? And he kind of looked at me, and uh, I said, why do you make such a big goddamn deal out of every shot? I'm getting a little tired of it. Peter heard me say that. Peter takes me to his trailer after the day's shooting. He said, you got to fire that guy. And I said, Peter, I, I can't do that. And he said, you got to. He said, he, it's obvious. He has an attitude. And I said, you know, this guy's done a lot of movies with me. He's always done a great job. But I appreciate the work he does, and he does it damn good. I didn't fire him. And, and that upset Peter. And... uh he didn't ask me to do his next picture. Did you ever fire anyone? In San Francisco. <laughs> I didn't actually fire him. I told him he could go home but still collect his uh, paycheck. He was useless. <laughs> All he did was get in the way, didn't know what he was doing, wouldn't rush to the sound truck to get things when we needed batteries or whatever, another radio or whatever. And, he was, and I just said, you know, go home. I'm not going home. I said, well, I want you off the set. I said, and you can collect your check. I said, just go, please, just go. Well, he complained to the production manager and blah, 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 and da, da, da. So he never got fired. I should have fired John Coffey three or four times. <laughs> no, it's true. And John knows it. He knows it. I know. That I I think um, there, there's one scene in Rocky Three. was it, where John was being rather obtrusive for Stallone's liking. We were we were shooting a scene and Mickey, who was, you know uh, Burgess Murdoch? Yeah, he was he was his trainer and his friend was having a heart attack. And uh, John Coffey was booming the scene and he was chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the goddamn gum, and the mic was 10 feet from him, you know, on the pole. And uh, Stallone looks over at him and says, stop chewing the goddamn gum. And John, a couple more, and Stallone says, swallow it. <laughs> and John says, what? He says, swallow the goddamn gum. <laughs> John swallows it, and we continue the scene. <laughs> 
with visiting your your dad on sets, was there an interest even at that young age Definitely. in just the technical side of things? Oh, Did yeah. you sit there with headphones? Always, always had my context, always listened intently. I mean, I I still to this day hold my breath when I walk on a set because I just knew how to be quiet and listen and pay attention and you know, I I I once in a while wander off to craft services, but otherwise I pretty much hung near you. Remember we were and... shooting a scene at uh SC? Yeah. And you came out and helped? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, you, I was going you, there You at were the time doing a better student. job than the people that were working for me. <laughs> you know, she did first see something run and get something out of the truck and do this. And she wasn't on payroll. <laughs> but uh, she, she knew what to do on a set bingo. Did you feel any pressure being the daughter of Charlie Wilburn and— a little, but, you know, since there was that seven-year gap while I was doing post-production, by the time I did get into production, it had been a little while since you'd retired. Yeah, but um, hopefully but still most everyone... people didn't have bad memories of me. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I did kind of get into the television world first, so, um, you know, and they are kind of separate worlds. The, the circles are different for who knows who and everything, so um, I certainly never wanted to be unprepared. You know, I I have a, a level of perfection in my head that's really, really high. I That's why I took so long to finally buy a package and decide to start mixing because I didn't want to leave anything to chance. You know, I, I wanted to know the industry so well that by the time I did start, I and that is actually why I finally bought the packages because I just... I, I could not do it anymore. I couldn't not go on to that next step because I I inherently now understand everything so well that it's just the logical progression. I mean, there are people that don't want to make that progression. They're happy being utility or boom. Yes, and I was for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I always said, you know, I actually don't want to be a mixer. I don't want... Uh, the headache of the, the gear, really. You know, there's so much to it and it's... You know, you can you can go down on one tiny little cable that you don't have or that breaks. It's it's scary. It can be really really scary. And so, um, I I just I loved my job as a utility. I loved booming. I still do. You know, I'm still doing it. So uh, I I I also love the interaction with the actors. I love being able to wire them. I like getting to know them. I like getting to know the entire crew. And as a utility, you have to know everybody and you have to get along with everybody. And I know that stepping into the mixing seat now, I'm going to be kind of one layer removed from everyone. And I actually don't like the idea of that. So um, I plan on kind of still getting out there and getting to know everyone and, and still having fun and, you know, not being that person that hides behind the panel. Because, you know, some people do, some people don't. I'm not going to be that person Mm -hmm. for sure. When I look at your dad's career, I mean, he started back in the late 50s, 60s, worked on some of the most memorable TV shows of that time. Do you catch a film on TV and you sit down and say, good grief, my dad mixed that? Yeah, it just happened the other day. Jeremiah Johnson was on and uh, I sat the kids down and I made them watch it. No, look, I'm getting teary again. Um. And it's so impressive. It was interesting. I knew, I grew up in Santa Barbara. We moved there when I was two. Um, So we were a little bit removed from, you know, Hollywood and L.A. and all that. So um, all I knew was that nobody else did what my dad did in school. And 
But I was so proud of that. I was so proud. What is the one thing you absolutely need to do to win a race? That's pretty damn obvious. You keep quiet. You need to finish the race. Tim, I realize Harry's been around a long time. I'm not saying that his ways are antiquated, but it helped have a car that handled properly and didn't blow engines. Well, if he wouldn't get excited and over-rev, the son of a bitch, the engine wouldn't blow. Now, Cole, when you shift the gear and that little needle on the tack goes into the red and reads 9,000 RPM, that's bad. It's also my fault if the tires blow, if you ask this old fart. Well, hell yes, it's your fault. There's 40 other vultures out there who managed to finish the race on their tires. You see Darren Waltrip using up his tires? There's nothing I can't do with a race car. Well, that's the difference between you and me. There's only so much I can do. That's obvious. Harry, he doesn't need to appreciate your job to do his. Well, he sure as hell does. How can he expect a race if he don't know what a race car can and can't do? You see, I, I listened to that clip, and then, uh, Charlie, I don't know if, if, you know, you've got great memories of this, different perspectives since you were visiting as a kid, Anna, but when I listen to that, I think, okay, I hear a director saying, okay, we're going to shoot the rehearsal. You've no idea how ro loud Robert Duvall's going to be. Tony Scott's shooting wide and tight. I love Tony. God, I loved him. So what was the reality of working in that movie? You've got the dynamics of, you know, box office star like Tom Cruise. You've got the producing team of Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer. You've got your daughter visiting the set. Well, at the beginning was terrible because in the first scene we're shooting, there's race cars racing by, but they're out of picture. Right? So it doesn't matter. We've seen them. I asked Duvall to hesitate his dialogue for a second till they're out of sight and they're off. Now, and can I ask you, you worked with Robert Duvall on The Killer Elite. Did that give you any kind of credibility, being able to ask him? No, I'll tell you how much you got me. He said, why in the hell are you bothering me with this? This is a race car movie and we're going to loop everything. And I said, no, we won't. I said, with a little cooperation, I said, we can do a good job. And he said, bullshit. We didn't loop a line in the whole picture. And at the screening, he came up, gave me a hug, and he said, God damn it, Charlie, you were right. You did a hell of a job. I said, thank you. But uh, it, it was difficult at times. But Tom had his own microphones <laughs> in little boxes that were lavaliers. <laughs> what know. were they? Were they a particular brand that you weren't familiar they're, they're, with? They're, they're the same goddamn microphones I was using with my radios. But they, they made them in these little boxes that were wood. And and I had to carry that crap around and only use those. And So with the producing partner of Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, what was your interaction with Don Simpson? Because they had had, you know, career highs. After this, I'm, I'm at the panel one day, and I didn't know who he was, okay? I knew who Simpson was, the name, but I didn't know the face. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm doing something or other. I forgot, and he came up, and he says, uh, give me a set of Comtecs. And I just ignored him. He said, give me a goddamn set of Comtecs. And I looked up at him, and I said, who are you? Right? And he said, I'm goddamn Dom Simpson. And he said, I'm the producer, if you don't know that. And I said, no, I, I, I know you're the producer. I said, and the reason I, <laughs> I said, the reason people, everybody wants one. I said, every asshole and his brother. 
So he said, you're calling me an asshole? Right? So we had some more, and then he finally walked away in a huff. And for some reason after that, he'd come by and get around, and uh, we'd go out for drinks and stuff. There was one director that uh, I've loved his his films. He's still very busy, and uh, he's a director by the name of Scorsese. You interviewed for Casino, and was that, you know, you're at a point in your career where you've, you've worked with, I mean, you've worked with John Ford, you yeah, worked with Sidney uh, Pollack. Was there still that anxiety going in before an interview? Because you, I think you interviewed over at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Yeah, was we it? did, right. And Judy came with me. For moral support? No. Uh. <laughs> and with Casino, you've got uh, De Niro, you've got Joe Pesci, you've got Sharon Stone. Was that a film that you kind of hold up there as one of the best that you've worked on? Well, the thing was is that uh, it was kind of enjoyable. Uh, Sharon Stone was wonderful. For some reason, she drove Scorsese crazy, but not me. From like the first day, she started coming over and talking to me. And then when she would leave during the night, she'd yell across the stage, Good night, Charlie. See you tomorrow. And I look around and thought, is she talking to me? And I had Cruz come over and say, how long did you know her? I said, today. <laughs> and Anna, during, during this time, did you get to visit Casino? Was I that a film? I did. I went out oh, to Las Vegas. Yeah. Did uh, she get treat like Royal it was Scorsese? So crazy. loved her right off the bat. Yeah. So um, I went out to visit, uh, hung out in Vegas for... A few days, and uh, I was visiting Dad one day, and um, just hanging out. We're just chatting. I was just watching what was going on, and then I finally went to leave because kind of nothing else to do. I had a I was visiting with a friend, so as I was walking down some stairs, a PA came running after me, and she said, "Hey, are you Anna Wilborn?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm Anna," and she goes, "Marty wants you." Uh, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> So I turned around and followed her back through set. Marty had set up a chair right next to him um, from where he he was directing right on set. It was a desk scene, I think, with um, Kevin. Well, he never sent for me, so I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, uh, yeah, so uh, Marty said, Anna, come over here. Have a seat. Sit down. Let me show you what's going on with this scene. And, And he directed the scene with me sitting next to him and basically gave me a little tutorial on what was going on and why he made the choices he made. And He didn't want you to leave either. Oh, my God. I was just shocked. It was so great. It was one of the best moments I can... Yeah, I was surprised. I was was surprised. I I mean, mean, I'm not saying she didn't deserve it. I'm just saying that uh, I never saw Marty do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he has a reputation for being really closed off and kind of hides when he's directing. And yeah, I was invited into the circle. (laughs) So was he accessible to you? Yeah, but, you know, he had blacking and behind him and on both sides, and you had to go through a thing to talk to him. Right. And sometimes he'd say, what, Charlie? You know? Mm -hmm. But he'd have to listen to me, and we'd we'd go from there. But uh, I got to tell you a funny story. They had a house chosen for the main house. So they say to go out and uh, look at the house and tell me everything and what I think. And it's a, it's going to a lot of days shooting there, 
probably a week or two at least. Well, two weeks maybe. I go out there and it's right sitting on the edge of the airport. The set man and who picks out the uh, locations. locations and all the rest of it uh, said he it, it took him a month to find this house and it's perfect for everything and the setups and the rest. So I went out and uh, it's right next to an airplane, uh, right? And I'm going out to the set. He gets me on my, my cell and he says, you got to okay this. He says, you got to okay this. It took me a month to find it and it's instrumental. And he said, I'll double the windows and I'll put, you know, baffles up and stuff. And I said, uh, okay, all right, I'll do what, you know. So I went and I looked at the house and then closed everything up and looked at my watch and I started timing the aircraft coming and going. And it was about every three minutes and you could hear him in the house. Marty says, what do you think? And I said, uh, uh, every three minutes a plane lands or takes off. And uh, I said, it's pretty busy. I said, if you can shoot scenes in three minutes once and then wait for a plane to land or take off, you can shoot there. And I said, there's, there's, no, there's no way I can record dialogue without, uh, without those planes roaring through the soundtrack. And Marty says, all right, what the hell? Okay, we won't shoot there. And the guy says, well, but, but Marty, I spent all this time. He says, go somewhere and build another house. Anna, you're hearing these stories. You know, you're mm -hmm. about to step into sound mixing. Do we have it easier today or have it more difficult? I, I think it's more difficult because it's harder to build relationships. You're on a set now and the DP is in DIT Village. Mm -hmm. The director is on his headphones. Mm -hmm. He's probably distracted with his iPhone, iPad. Right. And you're only ever coming over with bad news. I think the time that, <laughs> right. that Charlie has come through where the relationship was tight, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and that's so important and it's so much harder today. So, so what what are you anticipating in the in the weeks, months, years ahead? Well, I am glad that I have that utility background, you know, for so many years and that I was, I had to make friends with everyone. You know, I had to get to know the director. I had to make sure that they were happy with their context and with the situation. Well, sometimes you had to put six radio mics on people too, first thing. Exactly. So, Wire you know, everybody. Right. That's and that the is the mantra part. today. It Wire really everybody. Is. But Wire with... everybody. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm so happy I have that background and that experience and that comfortableness with just, you know, being everyone's friends and just being able to treat everyone normally. And like, you know, it's it's not a I I'm there to help, to serve, to make everyone happy with the job. So I think it's it's going to be easier in a way to to slide into that position. And well, your dad was very quick to speak his mind. You got to tell them what they don't want to hear, which yep. is sadly the role of the sign mixer at times. That, mm -hmm. You know, no, we can't shoot at this house unless you're going to uh, deal with an airplane every three minutes. What do you think, Dad? Do I have a hard time uh, not telling the truth? <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. Sometimes it's shocking. <laughs> but on... Uh, I guess, did you hear the stories about Town & Country? Town & Country is a is a film directed by a British filmmaker, director, Peter Chalsom, right. uh, starring Warren Beatty. The first day of shooting, we're shooting in a, a place that has uh, 
computer terminals, like 50 of them, with fans in them, and they can't turn them off. We and they have to have the air conditioner on. I mean, and it there. was it was. Oh, and they have you wooden floors that they're walking on. That it sounds like it's a horse running over concrete. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I use some radios and this and that, and I think yeah, we're not doing too bad, but you know, it's playing the levels down a little bit, and I put in the log raised two dB in the in the transfer. And uh, this and that. So the next day, I'm on the set, you know, and getting ready, and, and Peter comes in. He said, where's Charlie Woolworn? Where is he? And I thought, it's starting again. And, the, and by the way, the cameraman's with him, okay? And I said, I'm over here. So he walks around, he says, my God, I don't believe the dailies. He said, they were perfect. I didn't hear the machines, the air conditioner, the footsteps. He said, the tracks were clean. It was beautiful. Everything was perfect. And the cameraman says, how in the hell did you do it? I couldn't hear myself think. And they're going back and forth. From then on, Peter kissed my ass. <laughs> and then his first assistant, a young lady, came and told me, she said, he loves you. You're going to be doing all his pictures. And we had a great relationship after that. And the movie went six months. So anyway, when I got my Lifetime Achievement Award, Peter was on a picture in Canada. Guess what? He got his girlfriend and flew in for the night to, give the to be with me that night. Mm -hmm. And he started off by saying, Charlie and I did three pictures. And I thought, why is he up there? He's going to start lying. <laughs> why is he saying that we, we did one picture? And he said, those three pictures were town and country. <laughs> And at that time, everybody in the audience so was aware of town and country and what yeah. had happened. Well, I, I just want to ask Anna. So mm -hmm. it's now we're into 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. I think you got the word that, that the CAS is going to honor your dad. Oh, yeah. What was that feeling like? Oh, so awesome. I was so excited. And I, I was so happy he was, you know, getting his recognition because— he missed out on winning the Oscar for Days of Thunder. Um, he missed out on being nominated for Godfather 2, which he should have just simply flat out won. Um, so I thought this was a really nice way to honor the work that he'd done and, and uh, you know, be, again, super proud of him. And was it's a time where the family was saying, is, is he ever going to slow down? He just keeps working? Or were you saying to yourself, you know, I'm just... Well, it was funny. Peter got up and made a speech and... Uh... He got standing ovations. And you know what his girlfriend told me? He later, his girlfriend told me, if I hear that speech one more time, I'll go crazy. Because <laughs> he rehearsed the hell out oh, of it. Oh, that's so cute. But it was brilliant, wasn't it? Was it was so good. Oh, it was, it was great. Brilliant. It was a really fun night. Well, you know, it was a celebration of your career and rightfully honored. And, you know, I say, I knew who Charlie Wilborn was in Ireland, and I've talked about, you know, the, the people that have influenced me through my career. The, I remember sitting in Belfast looking at the credit for Jim Alexander or seeing the name Jack Solomon, all people that would have been contemporary of yours. And I feel that there's a great connection with this this industry, the people that do what we do. And, you know, your legacy, you've got your daughter here who's who didn't run away from science, has decided to embrace it and has had such a significant career. So you must be pr very proud of, of Anna as well. I am. I just tried to have her make this decision 20 years ago. I know I should have. But, you know, I was busy having a couple of babies and 
doing other things, but yeah. I'm ready now, and that's that's yeah, the best okay. part. Okay, that's. There was a time when I could have really helped her there too, because I had producers who had three, four shows going. Quinn Martin and different people. I think he thinks I'm not going to get a job. You're never going to work again. <laughs> I'm never going to work again. I just again. thought I could have got you a series. That's what I thought. I think now I can probably get myself a series. <laughs> yeah. And if, if there was one film looking back that you would say this this is the one that was most important to me personally, or the one that was the hardest one. Is there any one particular film? I have to say Godfather 2 was tough. It was tough. And it was uh, three quarters of the way through the picture. The producer comes to me, Gray Fredrickson, and says, he's taking your radios off the uh, off the show. He's putting his on. So I thought, you know what? I don't feel like fighting again. I said, okay. So then I look at the radios. They don't have batteries. Part of the installation of the top is screwed up and it has to be soldered. It's like they took them off a bench and didn't check them or do anything. They were a mess. And they had to go on the airplane that night. I couldn't use them. So I called Gray over after I looked at him. I said, I can't use those mics. I said, they need working. I said, it'd, it'd take me a day to get them ready to go, and I have to order some stuff. What does the jackass do? He goes he goes over and tells Francis, right in the middle of a scene. <laughs> right in the middle of a scene. Hopefully it goes insane. I don't mean a little bit. He goes nuts. He starts yelling and screaming. All that anybody cares about is their fucking money. They don't care about the picture. They don't care about anything. They don't give a shit. And he starts tipping lamps over <laughs> and scrims. Everything he walks through, he knocks down and gets into his trailer on the set and slams his door. I figure, I'm gone. <laughs> I am fired this time. <laughs> Gray Fredrickson comes out of the trailer for where he's been sitting with Francis for an hour. And he says, Francis apologizes. He's sorry. I said, really? He said, yes. And he's uh, let's, uh, he's going to come out and we're going to start shooting. And uh, he uh, he apologizes. Yeah. And so he's, he's sorry. And he, he said he, he embarrassed himself. And I thought, God, that's really weird. But I accepted it. I said, sure, okay, fine. I'm staying on the picture. <laughs> so... Uh, Mike Licks come, comes to me when he hears everything that's happened. And he said, uh, we'll, ship, we'll ship his radio mics. Take yours. You'll still get your rental. He's not going to know the difference. And that's what happened. And from then on, he'd say, how are my radios working? I'd say, fine. They're doing great. <laughs> they were sitting in a box all, you know. <laughs> Looking for a truck. <laughs> so that's another one of the stories. With, uh, so these with are these are things that Anna's not going to have to worry about. I don't think there'll be any demands, you know, today for an actor or producer saying you got to use this microphone oh, or God, I hope director. Not. Mm -hmm. Is there any particular film that your dad did that is your favorite amongst them all? Definitely Dead Poets. I think that it was such a great, you know, like coming of age for me. Um, just being that, you know, that thirteen. Uh, and just, it was, it was such a obvious 
classic. Yeah, you know, how long even, did, did you guys stay there? It was all all through Christmas. I was out there a yeah. good three weeks. Yeah. We stayed in Delaware and then would visit the kids' school. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. It was just it was so clear that that was a really special film that was being made that would that would last, you know, that would you could now watch today with your son and really enjoy and really get something out of. It was a really really special time. I want to thank you both for just coming together and just this celebration of your dad's career and also you're embarking on a uh, another career. I mean, you've been in signed. You've been around signed for your for your whole life. But uh, really, it's just been such a pleasure. And uh, I'd like to thank you both on behalf of the CS for sitting down with me. And we're just going to close out with a little bit of music from some of the films that your dad worked on. Oh, no. Okay. Terrific. <laughs> I'm gonna start crying again. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.